I'm feeling cute. Yeah. Um, okay. I have to ask you flashcard questions because that's what I do. Oh no. So this okay. is Chris Jones. Hi, Chris Jones. What's up? On Grace's graduation day. Yes! Pew, 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 pew! <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're on UCLA campus where we boldly smoked a joint. <laughs> Listen now. <laughs> no, but like. No, but I explained, I explained. We get to smoke a joint. Why? Because, you know, auntie levels, right? Because we aunties. They're not going to come over here telling us to put that joint out. I will spank them so hard in the ass. They will. They will pass the fuck out. Okay? And I'll record it. Okay, okay, okay. Here, here are the, the flashcard questions, okay. right? It's called, this, this K-drama is called My Princess. So let's say, let's say you're like a 20-something-year-old orphan okay. okay and you were adopted into a a single mother no she was married she she became a, a widow all right so you you were, you were adopted into this family along with another adoptee same age as you mm -hmm. but your mother said you had to call her unni which is big sister okay so you became the baby daughter in the family but one day somebody comes up to you and says you're actually the daughter of the last king the last official king of Korea okay. before the monarch was overtaken by the Japanese colonial people. And they say you're actually a princess. What do you do? What do I do? Wait, how old am I? Mid 20s. Mid 20s. Um, and I'm sorry, my family is treating me like shit. Yeah, am I they're, getting along with them? Not really. No. Yeah, you, they like, don't. They don't treat you very well. No. Sticking out like a sore, sore thumb. Kind of like your your older sister, the adoptive older sister. She treats. She's a, she's a real bitch. Okay. Mm -hmm. So your older sister is not like, she's not better than you by any means, but she does, in social terms, like she she did go to college. You know, um, got better grades. You know, like she's showing more of that social potential than you ever did mm -hmm. and she's very competitive with you mm -hmm. she's jealous of you but you're the one that like you know these government people these like ceos corporate ceos they come to you and they're like you're a princess like you're the last remaining royal blood there is and we want to honor that so i'm being honored in what way what am like I you 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 get to move into a fucking you get to move into a fucking uh, mansion, like the palace. Mm -hmm. You know, you get the royal treatment. Like they're gonna treat you like. Why a... would I not want this though? <laughs> I... Other people that say like, no, I'm gonna stay with this family. Yeah, I guess. I guess um, I'm asking you a stupid <laughs> fucking question. Not about saying yeah. it's stupid though. Yeah. I'm just saying like we're conversing. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you you would say yes. I want all those things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Um, okay. In the middle of that, let's say that your father, your dead father. The adoptive one let's say his name sort of gets like pulled through the mud because he he had some scandals mm -hmm. back in his day and now that you're royalty and you're like in the press and everything they're sort of muckraking the dirt out of you and that's what part of the dirt and now like your father's name is smeared all over the press and your mother is very angry with you because of that what do you do i mean well, she's not really my mother right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess not. She'll be raised you for 20 years. Yeah. 
I mean, you're being real. <laughs> no, I'm not Ooh. saying that I would just forget. I, I'm not going to just forget this lady, yeah. you know, but um, I think me, me speaking as the person that I am now would be different than if I was in my 20s. Uh. And I definitely understand um, the conflict. <laughs> yes. And all of that. Like, okay. You know, there's conflict, but I think that. Um, a lot of times what keeps us kind of uh, in unhealthy relationships with people that we love is that obligation. And I think that she should work on kind of not feeling as obligated as she might towards this whole situation because she got a lot going on. <laughs> okay, yeah. And she has to be fair to herself, you okay. know. So, and I think that the conversation should start from there. Yeah. You know, so I don't feel like she should go one way or another per se. I think that is a thing where she has to, you know, talk, talk about alignment, be in alignment with herself before she decides what's best for her. Okay. All right. So go to Peru, take some ayahuasca, <laughs> you know, find exactly. yourself. Find yourself, bitch. Exactly. Okay. And, you know, maybe never come back. She yeah. Can do that just stay too. there. Just yeah. You're a princess. Just stay there. Why come back? Why? Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. So the guy, the man, the old CEO man who found you and said that you're the princess and like, you know, all this shit. Um, he says that there's like one piece of evidence that they, that the people need to see, which is this little pocket. It's like a little pouch. What kind of pocket? It's like a little pouch. It's not a pussy pocket. It's not a pussy. I was just like, do they want to see her? It's not a rubber pocket. vagina in a flashlight no 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 it's they need a, to like identify her and it's a cotton traditional korean cotton pouch it's like a little pouch and uh it has like the royal embroidery on it and he says like do you remember having this you know showing this as evidence will really like solidify your name but you're like no i don't know where it went i don't know what you're talking about and then your older sister the older sister the adoptee one the one that hates you is like all bitch she one day turns up at the palace with that pouch and says, I'm the princess. I'm the princess. So what would I do? Yeah, what would you do? Ooh. Um, <laughs> what would I do? Um, I would probably find a way to prove her wrong. <laughs> I'd have a conversation first, uh -huh, with you her. know. Maybe with my, you know, tape recorder or something like that. My, um, mm. and record the conversation. Surveiller ass. I'd, I'd wear a wire. Yeah. <laughs> Go deep and undercover. No, okay. but yeah, I would definitely, um, try to expose the truth. Okay. All right. All right. Let's say, um, the CEO, that CEO man, the old man who's like, you're a princess and all this, right? He says he wants to leave all of his wealth to you, the princess, because he committed some crimes during the colonial period and betrayed the monarch, betrayed the king, mm. which is how you and your father ended up in the streets. Oh. And then your father ended up dying and all this shit. Oh. And so he feels bad, remorse for this, so he wants to leave all of his millions to you. Mm. But he has a grandson, and his grandson's fine as hell, and he's such an asshole, and he's all like, no, Grandpa, that's my money. 
fuck this bitch, you know? And then, and then this grandson, like out of desperation and anger, comes up to you and he says, how about you fuck all this princess shit and you just come live with me? What do you do? Why would I do that? <laughs> Rightfully mine. It's not yours. It does not belong to you. You are not entitled to it. You're not doing me a favor. That would be doing me doing you a favor. Yeah. yeah. Why would I do that? Why? Why would anybody? What What's would, incentive? Why, why, why do you dumb bitches do that? I don't. Some dumb bitches do it. Mm. But he is that fine. Mm. Uh, he is so oh. hot. My gosh. Oh, he's the type to make you believe everything that oh. he says. <laughs> oh. oh, and more. Well. Yes. I was just a spectator and I believed him. I was like, yeah, just give up your princess shit and go live with him. Yeah. I was saying that. You know, I mean, oh, that's amazing. You see that out there? Oh, that is amazing. That looks beautiful. And it's polluting the earth. Hello. Uh, are you going to pick up that confetti plastic? It's going to be sticking in the grass. That's absolutely not going to happen. All right. Okay. Last and final question. Yes. Um. <clears throat> The the hot the fine guy the really hot guy, he comes to his senses, you know, and he's like, um, I'm sorry for having been greedy and shit, like that. My grandfather's money was never my business, was never mine to claim. Like whatever he does is fine. Like he's like, but I love you, you know. He says he does want to be with you. He wants to be with you, but you know. In turn, because of your existence, he is losing all of his wealth. You know, like he is losing his his heir title from his grandfather's wealth and all that. You know, mm -hmm. he's losing all of that because of your existence. Because you're the princess, you're gonna get all this money and you know foundation money and all that stuff. So there's this little bit of conflict there, conflict of interest, a little bit of guilt. Um, and he goes away for two months, doesn't contact you, no nothing. And like you were, you were texting him. You were like reaching out to him. He doesn't, he doesn't respond at all for two months. Mm. After two months, he does show up. What do you do? I mean, I, I, I don't think there's anything else to talk about after that. We were gone for two months. Like why? Why? Why is he coming back? Is he coming back because he? I need more information. First of all, he wants to be with you. He wants to, so he's coming back because he wants to be reunited with me. Yeah. No. Mm. No, we're not doing that. Yeah. Two months of silence was too much. It's too long. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that that's a situation where I would want to be tied up with. I, I would probably have enough going on at yeah. that point. Uh-huh. Um, Other people. You know. That's just me. Other interests, yes. It's like, what do you mean? I was never waiting around for you. Mm -mm. You were gone. I thought you were gone. I thought we said goodbye. That's, that's it. You know, money does not solve everything, but I think she would probably have enough money where he wouldn't need to be a motherfucking factor. Yeah. It's just what I think. Yeah. All right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Welcome to K-Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session.
August 14th. It's the day I'm recording. Of course, you're hearing it a couple days later. I'm actually going to go camping tomorrow by myself for the first time. Like, I've gone camping as a child. I've gone camping with friends. But I've never gone camping alone. And that is very scary for me. But I'm going to try it out because something in me is just telling me, Grace, it's time to go camping by yourself. You know, like I'm still on this journey of shedding fears, like confronting my fears. And that's a big fear for me, being out in the woods alone, in the dark, <laughs> where there are bears, you know. And I, I, I made the mistake of texting a friend of mine who has gone camping a lot. And I said to him, I was like, I'm, I'm really scared about going camping alone tomorrow. And he was just like, good luck out there, sister. Which was just like, I'm, dude, like, I, didn't, I don't need to be told sarcastically, good luck. I need encouragement. He, and you know what he does? He just fuels my anxiety even more. He's like, are there cougars out there? Get a bear spray. I'm like, what the fuck is a bear spray? We need a separate spray for bears? Why? Like, I'm bringing a can of mace. I'm not really afraid of bears so much as I am afraid of, you know, men, of people, right? Because I'm going out into the woods alone with a vagina. And usually when a woman goes out into the woods alone with her vagina, nothing good ha ever happens, you know? Like, she's doomed. Like, it's over if she goes out into the woods alone with a vagina? Are you kidding me? The show I'm going to talk about today is called My Princess. It's a 2011 K-drama from NBC written by Chang Yongshi. And it stars Song Seung-on and Kim Tae-hee. And you couldn't find a more beautiful couple <laughs> on screen. I mean, they're not married to each other. Kim Tae-hee, as everybody knows, is married to P. Okay. This was a interesting show. It's a rom-com and interweaves the what-if scenario, right? The what-if if Korea had continued to... Uh, retain its monarchy to the present day. What would have happened? What would it look like? So that's the what if scenario. If you think about it, the members of the Korean monarch were still around less than 100 years ago in Korean society. The final members of the Korean empire were in reign up until the year 1910, which is when Japan officially annexed Korea as a colony. And then subsequently their monarchy was you know, removed, forcibly removed and dissolved. Even though I'm not a fan of that horrible, horrible show, The King Eternal Monarch on Netflix. Uh, what if the monarchy continued to reign? What if Korea never got into a war? What if Korea was never um, colonized by Japan? What would that monarchy look like? Especially if it was set in Busan, which is the city I was born in. Like, what would that look like? And I, I loved the imagery of it. I mean, that was awesome so you could literally just watch like the first episode of the king eternal monarch and just get your rocks off with that first episode just see the images and then you know you could just forget it the show sucks that show is really bad okay it's as bad as vanilla sky <laughs> my princess is a show about a girl named yishai who was an orphan raised by a working class family she also has an older sister who is also an adoptee and she is her biggest rival competing for their mother's attention okay and so is later told that she's actually the long lost daughter of the monarch's last reigning king and she is asked to take her place in korea as the princess 
and a whole bunch of readjusting takes place as a result, right? I felt like this show was a good commentary on the pressures of a young woman not wanting to outshine her jealous older sister and not disappoint her adoptive mother. It's like her wanting to do what is right for everyone is like the most, it's the biggest priority, right? So it's got this heteronormative filial message about what is moral and what makes an upright woman. What sacrifices does she need to make in order to maintain harmonium in the home, in the palace, in the nation, right? For that reason, the message behind this show is utter crap, okay? I completely disagree with it, right? No one woman has the responsibility for for that many things it's just come on like celebrate your freedom you have agency okay but i like this show for the fun spoils of watching it like it was like watching an extended version of the shopping scene in pretty woman right like you get to see this poor orphan girl get all the clothes get all the shoes she gets all the rooms in the palace that she wants okay she even gets a really hot guy all right, Song Seung-won is fine as hell. Oh my god, that motherfucker is so hot. It's like ridiculous. And I do find this show to be somewhat dated. It came out 10 years ago. It's somewhat dated in that the man who was assigned to be her teacher, Song Seung-won, he is just extremely inappropriate. He treats her like a little girl, even though she's in her 20s. And he talks down to her a lot, condescends. He force kisses her a lot, okay? The show makes a very interesting commentary on how the media and press work around royalty, okay? You can even code switch that and say it's a jab at how celebrities feel victim to the media and victim to the publicists and the team who design or construct an image of celebrity for the world to see through media, right? And I think this conversation is especially relevant in our age of hashtag free Britney, but seeing as Britney appears to be on her way to being completely free from her father's, you know, conservancy thing, I think we can just move on to more pressing matters in the world, like the earthquake in Haiti, for instance, like Syria, for instance, like the Delta variant that's still killing many, many people in our world, for instance. Okay. So if you want to just zone out and watch a fun Cinderella slash pretty woman rom-com K-drama my Princess is a good one. I recommend it. And both Kim tae and Song seung have very good comedic timing. And they're just very cute to look at. They're very pretty people. Okay? So if you want to look at pretty people for like an hour 15 per episode, I think they're like 16 to 20 episodes. Just like enjoy. Enjoy the pretty people on your screen. Okay? Why not? You deserve it. You deserve to see some pretty things. Today's guest is Dr. Bambi Haggins. Dr. Haggins is a comedy connoisseur. Okay, she is the author of the amazing book, Laughing Mad, which goes deep into the history of Black stand-up comedy in America and how Black comedians entered the screen world and what they had to go through in order to make it onto shows like The Tonight Show and Hollywood movies, right? Dr. Haggins is also a media studies professor at UC Irvine. And she's just a lot of fun to talk to because not only is she a wonderful scholar that our world and society are very lucky to have, but she's also an amazing teacher and mentor, right? And Dr. Haggins knows comedy very, very well. She knows it well as a historian, as a scholar, as a fan. And it's just been a lot of fun talking to her about comedy on this podcast because, you know, the tea gets hot. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's talk to Dr. Bambi Haggins. I'm writing about Lovecraft Country. Oh, very nice. Insecure. 
mm-hmm. not together, the mm-hmm. other two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the angle for Lovecraft? Uh, with Lovecraft Country, I'm talking about uh, Misha Green's version mm. of Lovecraft Country. Okay. And how, like when I first heard that it was, they were making it into a show, mm-hmm. I was really worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. Because there are some things that happened in the book that had me feel in some kind of way. Yeah. Um, and she basically took care of the things that were my biggest concerns. Okay. But she also um, tried to make each of the experiences, each of the journeys of the, the characters really resonate with this particular historical moment. Mm-hmm. By, you know, compli- did you see Lovecraft Country? I just watched some of the pilot, um, but no, I'm not a Lovecraft fanatic or anything. Yeah, it's, they changed, a a little boy became a little girl in Mm. this. So, like, there's a lot of things about the males they could talk about, but men always get talked about. So I'm focusing on the women. Yes. Um, And the women also are related. Hmm. Mother and daughter and two sisters. Right. And the idea of solidarity and yet individuation, you know, Mm -hmm. being able to realize your own potential. Yeah. At the same time. What do you think of that? Like, I mean, this is a narrative device that I see often in television, especially Korean television. You have this constant trope, typically of the orphan. And, you know, right now you're talking about mother, daughter, sister kind of relationships. But like in Korean dramas, you always have an orphan, a female protagonist who is an orphan. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why is that the case? You know, other than just like, practical purposes for like plot you know getting the plot you know sort of raising the stakes driving the plot besides that like as a character analysis right like what is it about the death of parents like a child who has no parents like what is it about that that is particular that is constantly present on television i was just wondering i I think it's because there are ways in which those characters are tabula, tabula rasa, right? Hmm. We don't know what baggage they're bringing with them. Hmm. Even if they tell us about the orphanage or, right. you know, there, there is, and there is this idea of them having something to prove, right. always having something to prove. And to a greater degree, because either their parents died, they were abandoned, they mm-hmm. were given up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it there is this, I think it's because there needs to be this declaration of selfhood mm-hmm. on some level, mm-hmm. but at the same time, just as strongly, the desire to belong. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And what's unique about the character dynamics that you're talking about here with Lovecraft is like 
there is a bond. I mean, they're all related and there's this bond, but it's also like, I mean, anybody who has a family knows how difficult it is to be with a family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, do they, do the characters get along? Like, is this a loving, um, supportive kind of relationship? They're complicated relationships. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Letty and, um, well, Letty is Dirty Smollett, who's like beautiful, light-skinned woman. Mm-hmm. Ruby is, you know, and traditionally Eurocentrically beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, Ruby um, is Wumi, oh, what's her last name? She's also in Loki. Um, anyway, she, <laughs> mm-hmm. she is, a, you know, she's a Zoftig, dark black woman, mm-hmm. but she's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's gorgeous. Yeah. Cause most people don't make it on screen unless you got something going on. Oh yeah. Um, but they have very different because they're half sisters. Uh, okay. Well, that's implied. It's not stated. Okay. But um, but her relationship, one's relationship with the mother is very different than the other's relationship with the mother. Yes. And, and one, Ruby stayed home, stayed there. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, uh, uh, the, the other one, Letty was off doing her thing mm-hmm. um, and they allude to some of it being protest related. Okay. But yeah, you know, early civil rights era. Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, apparently Ruby sent let Letty money to come back for her mother's funeral. Uh huh. And she ended up using that money to bail people out of jail. Huh? Okay. Oh, that's and, badass. Mm-hmm. And so there's, and, and there is the complication of, well, I mean, there, there are some things that are kind of weird. Letty seems very, very loose, you yeah. know, in terms of, of being uh, free spirited and free with her body, mm-hmm. but she ends up being the virgin. Hmm. And, um, and Ruby ends up, sleeping with a white man who is well if you're ever going to watch it i don't want to spoil that okay um but it it, it's so this is really complicated yeah and ruby's idea of of acceptance is really tied to she's been trying to get a job at marshall fields forever and they finally hire a person of uh, a black person mm-hmm. and of course she's light-skinned like letty yes and so that's a, that's one trajectory for her mm-hmm. and then there's hippolyta and d which i think is interesting because hippolyta obviously is hippolyta and mm-hmm. her daughter is diana Mm-hmm. So you have the Wonder Woman um, sort of Easter egg laid in there. Mm-hmm. And Hippolyta, 
Hippolyta. I've got, I, I want to say it the, the correct way, but <laughs> they pronounce it Hippolyta. Okay. And Hippolyta actually um, was brilliant, like incredibly brilliant. She, uh, when they discovered Pluto, she sent in the name, her suggestion for the name, because they were going to name it. And they named it the planet Pluto, but it was that some little white girl who was the um, granddaughter of the scientists who um, who discovered it mm -hmm. uh, was given credit for the name. And mm -hmm. so there's there are all of these series of, of things that make her smaller and smaller and smaller. Fascinating. And um, she gets the opportunity not to be small. But that's, yeah, that's dope. I like that because you know, I think being an academic and being an artist um, is like, that's, that's the trajectory. Like every single person and institution around the artist and academic is doing everything they can to make, to diminish that person. Like, <clears throat> for instance, I was just looking, cause I'm on unemployment now. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of looking for like postdocs and fellowships. Like I look like every couple of days and um, I go on the UCLA grapes website and I'm looking at the list and on the top, I see like STEM engineering, some fellowship starting salary, 200,000. And right below it, it was like arts and humanities, one year fellowship, starting salary, 28,000. Oh yeah. Right like, below that, I can, I can tell you right now, I'm not making two hundred thousand. It's like the that disparity is so so huge. Like two hundred thousand versus twenty eight thousand is a huge disparity, and we spent just as much time in school. You know, we expanded our knowledge just as much. And what we do, the work that we do is just as life-giving and saving, I believe, yeah. right? And yet what we do is always diminished and demeaned. And it's like, the more I think about it, the worse I feel. So I try not to think about it, you know? Like, I, like I, I've been doing guided, like three guided meditations a day, Bambi. <laughs> daily Maybe. you know like i went to get um a massage this afternoon because i was in portland for a couple of shows and i just got back yesterday so you know after a flight i like to get a, a massage and my massage therapist was like your back is like so much like she was like did you lose weight and she was like your back is so much softer and you're a lot more flexible than when you and i first started working together and i was like yeah and she goes well what did you do different and i was like I haven't been exercising. I haven't been dieting. I just literally have been doing more guided meditations. And I started to stop giving a shit. Like I just stopped giving a shit. Like I stopped thinking about money. I stopped thinking about what my credits are supposed to earn me. Like I stopped caring completely. And um, yeah, like, my body is physically 
transforming and it's i'm like okay well if i have this then like i don't really care you know i mean how did yeah. you feel like after you graduated bambi like <laughs> um i was so under the gun because right. i you know i'm a working class kid yeah so the idea of not being employed was mm. like not acceptable yeah it, it just Mm -hmm. I applied to so many places and, and so I got the job at Michigan. Yes. But it was like, if you don't finish your disc, you mm -hmm. can start before you finish your disc. Yeah. But it's going to be at this lower salary, much lower salary. Right. And everyone I knew who did that mm -hmm. took at least another two years to finish. Damn. Um, so I was killing myself to get mm. it done. And, so you, uh, you were employed before you completed your dissertation. I got the job offer. I, wow. I, I didn't start until the disc was in hand. Okay. But I, I didn't, um, well, but when I did the job talk and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but that's that's remarkable i mean i've been applying for a year you know um as abd since last year now i'm done now that this is finished and everything's done but it's still like it's still rough <laughs> no and, and but i and and not to sound really cynical yeah but you know play heavy on the asian asian american stuff in your letters yes because all of a sudden there's a recognition all of a sudden that, yeah yeah after a bunch okay. of people die right it's always how it yeah. is yeah yeah just like you know the when people kept talking about the racial reckoning last summer right i i said i had reckoning a long time ago <laughs> this is your reckoning yeah um but use that while you can use it Yes, for and, sure. And and um, one of the things that that you know, I think I think I hurt you hmm. in the um, postdoc. Why? Because at, because UCI has st such a strong Asian Asian Pacific mm -hmm. um, department. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there was someone who said, well, why isn't she working with one of them? Hmm. Mm. I don't I, know. I, 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 I mean, I actually consciously thought about that. Nah. Um, I, but, I, yeah, no, I would say um, alleviate yourself from that, that thought. Uh, I don't think so. You know, it's, I, I didn't get it because I wasn't supposed to get it. That's it. Like that's yeah. how I see it, but no, you know, I, yeah. I understand. I, I mean, I intellectually, I understand that. Right. Okay. But but it it's um. It's weighing on you. Yeah, I really wanted you to get it. Oh I, yeah, I, me too. I was like, man, that would be so awesome. Like UCI working with Bambi, that would be so badass. And like you know, even like Chon Noriega was like, yeah, that'd be great. That would be awesome. You know, we were both like, yeah, it's gonna happen. And then it's just like it didn't happen. I was like, ah, it is what it is. But you know, it that that presidential 
postdoctoral fellowship thing was like a lot more competitive than any other year. And like I was supposed to apply to other schools like Maryland had it. <clears throat> excuse me so so many other schools had it but when i reached out for faculty mentors and stuff all of them were like first of all i don't know anything about your field and i was like you mean media studies but they all see just korean drama and they right. freak out and they just cut they just dismiss it um <clears throat> and they were like also arts and humanities isn't getting any funding for that like all of it is going to stem this year and i was like okay so since last year, like I already saw the bleakness of it. And since last year, I, you know, I went to the career counselor at UCLA and had a talk with her. And I don't know, she was just saying things to me that I feel like a career counselor should not say to a student. Things like, you really need a contingency plan for at least one year. She was like, you know, the, the something like getting, getting a job for arts and humanities was it was down by 40% in the last five years. And um, it's even worse due to COVID. And I mean, she was just giving me this doomsday talk that I just did not need to hear last summer. And um, in addition to that, like all the like SIG, there were these SIG groups, like SMS SIG groups, where they would uh -huh. do like job talk and postdoctoral fellowship kind of like like advice talks and I sat in on them via zoom and they were all saying pretty much what my counselor said like they're going to treat you like shit they're not going to they're not going to respect you you have to fight for things you have to be on top of it it was just like alarm 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 alert alert paranoia anxiety paranoia anxiety like that's they were just spreading this and I just remember thinking, like, I am never going to oh, come and sit in on any of these talks ever fucking again, because it's just why spread this negative energy? Why clip our wings before we even get to fly? And I was just like, that's your that's your experience, you guys. Like, that's not my experience. I'm not even going to think that I am going to end up like you, you know, so I've been cutting that away, too. That's, you know. That was a couple pounds off my back. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, absolutely. So, but, but there's another part of that. Yeah, you, you have to realize. Um, and I know this is going to sound, but white people aren't used to <laughs> not getting what they want. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm just being real. Yeah. How does she know that they were white? <laughs> They were. The career counselor was white. The people who were that paranoid and anxious were all white. Yeah. Yeah. And and we've, on some level, mm -hmm. on every level, yeah. have had to deal with pushing up against someone else's idea of me. Right. So we sell ourselves all the time. Right. We are always branding and marketing. That's the mm -hmm. only way you get through. Mm -hmm. And so don't listen to them. Yeah. yeah. It, the, the job market was just as bad mm -hmm. when I applied. Mm -hmm. It was the dip and then it went back up and then it went back down. Yes. Because that was 2000. <sighs> right. You said one of the things you had to do was what? Leave California. Be willing to leave California. All right. Yes. Mm -hmm. and it took me 16, 16 and a half years to get back mm -hmm. 
Man, and Michigan's so cold in the winter. Oh, we're frozen. <laughs> oh, boy. Let's talk about comedy a little bit, something lighter. Um, <laughs> right? Have you gone to any, like, live shows since we opened back up? No, no, mm. I haven't. I've just been writing, writing, writing. Man. I mean, like, but don't you feel like... I mean, what do you do to balance it out? Because I can't sit and write like all day. Like, what do you do in between? See, the problem is because post-surgery, uh -huh. there are issues that I'm still dealing with. I see. Okay. And, um, and you know, it, so it's, it, in some ways, I, I feel like... Um, I'm a lefty mm. who has to learn how to pitch with her right. Mm. Okay. I understand. So it does take up the whole day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and not necessarily getting that much done. You right. know, it, it's because I am a crafter. Uh-huh. I I don't I know you're not supposed to do this. I don't draft, <laughs> really. <laughs> wow. I I just write I don't want to go on to the next sentence until the last sentence is right. Wow. So the revisions that I need to make are usually fairly minor. Oh, wow. Uh, but the problem right now is I get stuck. Mm -hmm. And the only way I think that I'm going to get beyond that is to think of to try to find a new method hmm. um, in terms of writing. In fact, um, this is so crazy, but I've been working on it today. I'm trying mm -hmm. to make a worksheet mm -hmm. that I just fill out yeah, and then plug in to the Like draft. what kind of questions do you have in the worksheet? Like, um, why did you choose to uh, focus on the women, the mother and daughter and the sisters rather mm -hmm. than the father, fathers and son. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what I, I'm trying to, I, I guess what I'm trying to explain is I, I think that even though Tick, Atticus is the, definitely the central character, mm -hmm. I feel like Misha Green is shifted it in a way that Atticus and Letty hmm. are the leads. Mm -hmm. um, and there are problems with Letty too. I mean, none of this is perfect. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, there, it's funny, like regular black people <laughs> like Lovecraft country. Mm -hmm. Um, the, you know, sort of intelligentsia has a lot, a lot of problems with it. Right. Yeah, we always do. Yeah. We ruin movies for ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like when I went and saw Black Panther, I saw it at, uh, I saw it opening night at El Capitan with my sisters and, um, 
Um, I saw more kente cloth in that room than I've seen in 20 years. <laughs> they didn't have previews. Yeah. They had a DJ. People, it mm -hmm. was just, and I said, I'm not going to think about this. I just want to experience yeah. black joy. That's all I want yes. right now. Yeah, um, let it in. And, you know, yeah, it's a patriarchal society. Yeah, you know, there it, it's also class-based. Yeah, there's, mm -hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it, it was still, I mean, Okoye and Shiri are the shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And and there's no better ad lib line in years than "Hey, Auntie," um, with mm -hmm. you know that was just it, it's well I am Iron Man but that's anyway. Um, it's beautiful though. Yeah, it, it's I I think that I and what I am really focusing on is why. people, why there are people for whom it really, really resonated. Yeah. And, and, yeah, I like and those that. people mm -hmm. aren't necessarily in academia and they're not necessarily um, the rulers of the Twitterverse, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm kind of looking at um, – one of my favorite podcasts of all time always does recaps, the black guy who tips. Mm -hmm. So that's one yes. of my sources is, is their recaps right. and Kenitra books, who is Brooks, who is an academic, but, mm -hmm. but was writing for the root. Um, mm. So it was about, it wasn't about academic analysis. It was about fandom and critique. Yeah. And, and yeah. also my own reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And and, mm -hmm. um, and also it, it's sort of, part of me wonders if it might be kind of along generational lines as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of 40 and above. Yeah, I could and, see that. And I think that mm -hmm. particularly Hippolyta's I mean, the name of her episode is called I Am. So it's mm -hmm. all about a black woman asserting her own needs first. Yeah. Not yep. a man, yep. not her children, mm -hmm. her own needs mm -hmm. first. It's beautiful. We need more of that. We need a lot more of that on television. We need a lot more of that on screen. I've been telling... Um, all my like friends and creatives and intellectuals, like I've been telling all of them, I'm like, I want to see more examples of a female protagonist who is not trying to get married and not trying to have kids. Like, where's that? There is like no, ex there are no examples I feel like. And um, maybe not even career oriented. What is that? I mean, what the queerness of that? Well, you and, know? and then like, you move into the, the it, just in terms of black women, you move into the Tyler Perry trope, where the women who are um, career oriented, who are putting themselves first, mm -hmm. they are the evil mm -hmm. bitches, and the ones yep. who are gonna find, 
you know, their light skinned man to take care of them. Yep. Yep. It's yeah. I mean, it's problematic, but, but it is. And it's an, it's a very old idea. It's a very old concept. Like, when is it going to end? I just, I wonder. Have you read Kristen Warner's piece on plastic representation? Not yet, but I love Kristen Warner. I think she's amazing. I think okay. it's brilliant. Thank you. In terms of think, because mm-hmm. sometimes, are there things about some of these characters that could be seen as plastic? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But... Mm-hmm. It's better than I've seen in this genre, in this kind of hybrid genre before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. and and I think I'm not going to fault Misha Green for being ambitious. I'm not going to fault her for throwing yeah. everything at the wall. <laughs> and, and so... Yeah. And that's and that's why, like, there are certain things that I consider glorious messes. Bamboozled was a uh-huh. glorious yes. mess. Uh, uh-huh. Magnolia. Oh yeah. Was a glorious mess. Oh yeah. But yes, I am so glad that they went for it because that stretches oh, yeah. boundaries for other people's representation. Yes, and you could yeah. talk about it forever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh my god, there's a lot there. I mean, <laughs> I just uh, I like there are certain parts of Bamboozled that out of nowhere I will think of and start laughing. Like the guy, yeah, yeah the guy is it just um, up on you. Uh, audition where he's seen ah, them slapping them hoes. <laughs> Them slapping them hoes. Them slapping them hoes. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's hilarious and it's beautiful. It's like, that's what makes art good, right? It's like, if it's weird, it's going to stick out and it's going to stay in your memory forever, you know? And if it's weird, it's funny. Yeah. That's, and that's the thing about humor. Yep. You know, there may, may be... A joke that you just think that is so wrong. <laughs> yeah. But it's here. But it's here. Yeah. I mean, not to invoke Louis C.K., but, mm-hmm. you know, and there was a, there was the thing on, um, he did the thing called Talking Funny. Mm-hmm. It was C- Louis C.K., Ricky Gervais, um, Jerry Chris Seinfeld, Rock. and Chris Rock. Yes. And they talked about this guy was dying on he, this guy was dying on stage. Okay. And he did this this song parody, which is always like last, right? You know, last resort. Of, it's like yeah. that with the shit jokes and the sex jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it, he the, he started singing a song, uh-huh. and it was sitting on a cock because I'm gay. <laughs> Now you are going to think about that. I Forever. think about I think about that joke for and that's Forever. what ever. 
and and Louis C.K. said, you know, that I, that was twenty years ago. I don't remember the name of the comic, but yeah, I remember the joke. Yes, yeah. And, and you know, it it it's. I mean, and it's hard because I think I think Louis is. I think he's very talented. He is. I, I was never okay with mm -hmm. giving him a nigger pass. Mm -mm. I'm sorry. Never yeah, okay no, with that. Cool. Yeah. And and there is there there's a level of arrogance mm -hmm. even in the apology that was not an apology in the New York <laughs> Times. Um that you know, Louis's going to be fine. Yeah. He's going to be fine. Uh, a couple more years. It, well, he's already performing. He's already back. Yeah. Yeah, you know, started touring since last year. Yeah, so. and and but then uh, then I think about Chappelle touring with Joe Rogan. Yeah, I I'm, you know, a lot of LA comics and New York comics did move to Austin, and um, what I did was last month I went to Boise, Idaho, because I've been reading the bullshit online where they say Boise is going to be the next Austin. I mean, that's how pathetic and low I was feeling, I guess. And I go to Boise and it's a shithole. I was like, it's no, it's not. I'm, I'm here too soon. Yeah. And um, I'm resisting Austin as much as I can. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's also Texas. I exactly. mean, don't forget that it's Texas. Exactly. Bambi, actually, yesterday when I was in, um, not yesterday, the day before yesterday, I did a show in Portland. I met, uh, there was an audience member, a black audience member, and he came up to me and he was like, I, a lot of men do this, but they just try to come up and try to be funny because they think they're funny. And he wasn't <laughs> funny. He was very lame, right? But he was sweet because he was just, tr just trying to talk to me. And then we have a nice conversation. We, you know, we shared a joint and then I was like, okay, bye. And as we were saying bye, he says to me, shia, shia. And I just kind of rolled my eyes and I was like, bro, like, that's not cool. You know? And he was like, he looked so sorry. And he looked like he was about to cry. And that made it up for me. I was like, oh, he looks really sad. It's fine. And I said to him, I was like, it's okay. He's like, oh, how can I make it right? And there's nothing he can say or do to make it right. He apologized. I said, it's okay. And I just got to now say bye. I That's I it. Don't, I don't know what that means. It's just some, it's a Chinese phrase that's, that means thank you. And I'm not Chinese. I'm You're not Chinese. And I'm fucking... <laughs> from Brooklyn, which I told him in our goddamn conversation earlier. And I remembered, I was like, Oh, you said you're from Dallas. <laughs> you get a pass. Like anything <laughs> Just say whatever. It's fine. Yeah. I'm you like, don't know the difference. Dallas. Like that is Texas. Right. And I was like, it's cool. <laughs> I was like, I forgot that you're from Dallas. <laughs> it's all right. Carry on. Well, and it's sort of like, um, it, like when they, the whole thing, Margaret Cho does that whole bit about, um, old bit about Kung Fu, yep. about David Carradine. Mm -hmm. And it was like, hey, that guy, guy's not Chinese. <laughs> 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 and, um, 
yeah, it, it's just, <sighs> I, 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 I get, I, you know, I, I, I think that sometimes people get fat and happy <laughs> and they, yeah. They start congratulating themselves on their space and start feeling as though they can grant other people passes. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, just very recently in Austin, again, you know, um, what's his face? Tony Hinchcliffe saying chink on stage over and over again. Yeah. Like, I I wrote a bit about that. I was like, what makes you think you could say chink? Like, if you're white, you don't get to say it. I was like, and I said, it's okay. If you want to say it, I'm fine with it. Go ahead and say it, but say the N word too. Like, why are you pussying out with the N word? You know, if you're going to say, I mean, really like commit to your identity as a racist. Also like I'm about inclusivity. Why are you leaving out black people when you want to be racist? You know, be all inclusive, be racist to all. If you're going to be racist, don't pick and choose. Be racist, be xenophobic. Be, be all of it. Do yeah. it. Do, do it yourself it. up proud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah. it, and, uh, but it, it, it does, you know, it does, it, it's sort of like, have you watched um, Bo Burnham's Inside? I left it in my queue because he is so talented that I need to prepare myself mentally before I watch his stuff, but it's in my queue. Yeah, I think it's very good. Mm-hmm. I think it's very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was having a discussion with somebody saying, what, it really deals with how depression feels. And I said, Maria Bamford's been doing that for 25 years. Yeah. Do you know Joe Wong, this comedian named Joe Wong? He did the the White House correspondence thing like during Obama's administration, like yeah, I think yeah. first term. So okay, Joe Wong, who I love, he's like he's in Pasadena now, so I would see him at shows and mics and he's cool. And he says to me that Gary Goldman, uh, who did the Great Depression. Did you see the Great Depression? No. I thought it was okay. But I think Goldman's a really good writer. I think he's a supremely talented writer. Uh, I don't like his delivery particularly. He's very like neat. He's a neat comic, very square, a little, a little rote. Anyway, uh, he once introduced Joe Wong onto stage by calling him a chink back in New York when they were in New York together. And that got stuck in Joe Wong's craw, of course, because it's rude as hell. And, and Joe Wong is an activist, an Asian American activist as well. So that really, like, he brought it up multiple times, but nobody gave a shit. Like Gary Goldman's like Great Depression. All everybody does is like celebrate that sh- uh, that special. And then I saw Joe Wong like at a downtown mic, re- like like right before the pandemic. And then I was like, oh, like Gary Goldman's Great Depression. And then Joe Wong rolls his eyes and says, whenever a white person feels sorry for himself, he always talks about his depression. And it's like, that's all he thinks about is his depression. He doesn't think about how he offended, you know, other comedians of color during his career, you know? And I was like, what do you mean? And that's when Joe Wong told me that 
Goldman like called him a chink, calling him like bringing him onto stage while hosting a show, which is like I mean, that sets a tone, right? It it it, it it's it's yeah, kind of it, going. It, it, it yeah. goes along with like Louis getting the nigger pass. I'm not okay exactly. with that. Yeah, 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 and. and uh, Go on. I'm sorry. We see this in the news increasingly. Like, um, there was a, a white woman who was screaming at like an Asian couple, telling them to go back to China, this and that. And then the husband of that woman made like a very emotional video and uploaded it saying, My wife is suffering from mental illness and da da da. And suddenly, like, that is coming into the fore, right? It's like, that's something we, as scholars, I feel like we do need to analyze. On the one hand, yeah, ableism is real, and we have to take into consideration mental disability. Um, however, you know, when that gets, when the dimensions of that gets too expanded to the point where they say, like, well, this very, very wealthy white boy is mentally ill because all he knew was how to be a spoiled brat. And so, yeah, he ruins some people's lives, but, you know, he gets a pass because that's an illness. Being a spoiled brat is a mental illness, right? Like, yeah. Um, what was the word that was used for that? I don't I remember. remember. But you know exactly the case I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know it's case. Um, and the thing is, and I think that personally, I think when male comics talk about mental illness, it's viewed differently than when female comics talk about mental illness. Mm, interesting. How so? Because I think they're being brave. The men? Yeah. With their vulnerability. She's, yeah, she's just being, she's just crazy. <laughs> right. I mean, mm. Maria Bamford does a bit about it in, mm. I think it's an old baby where she says, you know, I went, was doing this, this morning show and this guy didn't like my wares and mm. says, he says, yeah, I, you know, I don't get it. it. I think she does all these voices. I think she's schizophrenic. Hmm. And she said, schizophrenic, bipolar too. <laughs> Not my illness. <laughs> I love Maria Bamford. I, uh, yeah, I, I, and yeah, I actually uh, wrote in because I, instead of doing my work, listen to podcasts, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I wrote into my one of my new favorite podcasts, which is called Murder Most Irish. Uh-huh. Um, it's a true crime thing. You see, these two women. Uh -huh. And their DBF, gay best friend, yeah. who um, is their engineer. And they were talking about inside and how it was so remarkable. And I said exactly what I just said to yeah. you. Yeah. And, and it's, but, but it's not. I mean, she's been being courageous for 25 years. Yeah. Never stopped. And she still doesn't like she still we still see Maria Bamford in open mic rooms, you know, she still does the one on ones with random people on Twitter to 
make sure that her jokes land. I mean, that is like supreme diligence and respect, like respectable. Um, because like at a certain point, a lot of comics stop going to open mics. You know, they consider themselves like, well, I'm beyond mics now, right? And yeah, okay, like that's understandable, but the that's a risk too. At a certain point, you're just saying, well, I'm I know I'm everything I say is gold and funny. I don't need to work these things out for the audience per se. Um, but Maria Bamford doesn't do that. Like she still feels it out with her, you know, non it, it, uh, non-paying audiences. Yeah. When um, well, actually, this was paying, but um, the same quarter that you came and talked to mm-hmm. my grad class, mm-hmm. we we went watched one of her. Um, it was Jackie Cation opening, and oh, yeah. so she her. did a Zoom show. That's awesome, um, mm-hmm. and it was it was awesome, and yeah. it was and it was clear she's working stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but I think that process was even more valuable for them yeah. to see. It's amazing to watch that. Yeah. I saw her do it at the clubhouse and, um, it's like a free show, just donation based. You could leave money like in a bucket if you want, but it was like packed and she had two openers, um, like up and coming comics, you know, like that was awesome too. Like she's giving them credit, you know, like that's amazing. And uh, she was, she did a full hour working stuff out and like just watching that is so like, it's such a unique and rare experience. Um, And it was so fun to watch. And it gave me confidence as a comic too. I was just like, all of us are working, you know, none of us come perfect, you know, we're all a work in progress. What we bring to the stage is stuff that we know works. That's why that's why I love comics. Like comedians are such vulnerable people. They're so fucked up and full of insecurities and sadnesses and questions about everything, but when they go up on stage, like they look so like rock solid, confident, badass, you know. It's like a joy to see and um I feel lucky like that's something I wrote down like while I was in Portland I was like I, I'm grateful to myself that I decided to be a comic like like there's no other thing that I would have ever wanted to be more than this and I'm happy that I'm doing it you know no I I as I said I am your biggest fan <laughs> I I I totally I I I wish at some point in time I had had the chutzpah to try it um, well, I mean, you wrote an amazing book on it. So, you know, I mean, Laughing Mad is a very important book, um, a book I love very much. And honestly, like reading that book, it gave me some, how do I say, sort of, it gave me some balls to just be like, I'm going to just do what I want. Like, they're, like I'm just going to write what I want to write, how I want to write it, you know, because like we can sit and question what we do all day, every day and not do anything. But like, I love the way that um, you wrote that book. It was just like, I felt your passion in like every, in every chapter. And um, I think that's something, you know, grad students and all scholars can learn from. It's like, that's what makes this project fun. That's what makes anything fun is like 
make sure it's full of passion. Um, but let me ask you this. This is more like an academic question, but like, what's your take on what realism is? Like, what is realism for you? Realism in the sense of like related to television, realism related to feminism, like how would you define realism? Oh, is it, does it exist? Mm. Um, because it, it like I, I wrote a piece about realism in relationship to homicide. Yeah. And, I and, and I talk about it in terms of emotional realism. Right. That there are things that happen that just hit you. I need to think about that when I'm talking about Lovecraft Country. Mm. Um, <laughs> that um, they're, they're things that just feel right. That, huh. that, that, that it's following a logic that makes sense to you. Okay. Now, because just because it's my emotional realism doesn't mean that it's going to be somebody else's. Right. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, the whole idea of cinema verite. Yeah. You no, know, you're choosing to point the camera in one place and not another. Sure. Um, yeah. and, and that's, you know, that's why, you know, something I say, my students all the time is everything has an agenda yeah don't don't get it twisted yeah yeah because everything you choose to say choose not to say deal with a race yep. those are all active choices choices yes and they're sometimes not choices that you are on the top of your mind mm-hmm Meaning it's, it's not this, oh, this is my agenda. Mm -hmm. But you can't tell me that there aren't shows that are all white that didn't need to be all white. Mm -hmm. uh, girls, for example. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just hate that show with the white hot fashion. Um, yeah. In Brooklyn. <laughs> I mean, and and that's why, uh, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, in 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 the stuff that I'm writing about, insecure. Yeah. East is not talking to me. Mm. You know, I, I get that. Right. She is a thirty-something. I'm almost sixty. Mm -hmm. She is not talking to me. Right. But I appreciate that she is talking specifically to a black female audience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who uh, has been, you know, even when you think about shows in the past, living single had black writers, mm -hmm. girlfriends had zero. Mm. You know, so it, it's the, the whole idea that she, she is, is creating her own emotional reality. Right. I like that. And, and so, you know, with realism, like everything else is subjective. Yes. Oh, I like that a lot. I like that, you know, you say realism is something you feel then, like you feel what's real. And that's very affirming because it says, if you feel it, then it's real, right? Like we get to say that. 
and um you know that that gives us agency you know it lets us say like okay well affect counts um even though these words and institutions and whatever may gaslight me and tell me one thing what i'm feeling is another thing and so let me declare it and say that that is my reality well it but it, thing about affect mm -hmm. <laughs> is it goes both ways hmm. because there are people who are listening to tucker carlson mm -hmm. and he is telling them the truth exactly he is telling them what's real right yeah uh-huh and you know i can sit here and say you know how can they disregard this mm -hmm. um how can they think there's a conspiracy mm -hmm. you know and then i think well what about you know destroying a whole neighborhood in philadelphia and nobody's saying anything about mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. you know capital broke. yeah you know, it, it, it's not like crazy bullshit doesn't happen. Right. But it, it, it's, it's, and I see this connecting with what we were talking about before mm -hmm. about the depression, mm -hmm. you know, he's being vulnerable to talk about his depression. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I, I feel like when and even about, you know, going to those uh, Zoom things, the Zoom yeah. sessions, mm -hmm. when your assumption mm -hmm. is that your privilege is going to continue, <laughs> mm. then it's, you're looking for a reason. Right. Why? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it, it goes all the way back to the Civil War, you know, mm -hmm. who defended slavery the most? Subsistence farmers. Yep. Yep. Not because they, they had slaves, that. but they mm -hmm. aspired to have slaves. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's actually a key component to us understanding why so many working class people were pro-Trump and why so many migrant workers are pro-Trump and blah, blah, blah. You know, like th this so-called other side. And I'm calling them the so-called other side. Not that they're not, but it's like, you know, these these concepts are becoming increasingly nebulous to me. Is that every human being wants the same thing in that they want to feel safe. They want to feel recognized and understood. It's a very childlike desire, a very primal. It's the inner being, the infant in us wants it. Safety, security, recognition. And anybody can go and create that, construct that kind of universe for any individual. Yeah, but but I also think that it baked in, have you read Cast? No, I haven't. You need to read Cast. Okay. Um, I think you'll, uh, because I, see, I get really frustrated with the folks who say, it's all about class, it's not about race. Hmm. It's like, how do you take those two things apart? Exactly. You know, uh, you might have had folks who came via Ellis Island, but mm -hmm. they weren't 
They weren't mm. property. Yep. They weren't, they didn't come in chains, did they? Yeah. And, and, and so it, it's, but the whole notion of, I'm looking for the, it, her last name is Wilkerson. Okay. Um, I can't remember the first name. Um, but, you know, I, I really feel like part of it too, feeling safe is also about someone being below you. Hmm. I'm not at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So that I'm safer than I would be if I were at the bottom. Yeah. Or what about this idea? The idea that there is no hierarchy. Do you think that's true? I think there are multiple realities at work at all times. And the one reality is the the systemic reality. Uh That's a real reality. And then the other reality is the reality that I try to create every morning with my meditations uh-huh. and the reality that I try to create when I'm drawing and painting, which is that there are no hierarchies and that there are no rules. And uh, something I just picked up the past couple of days being like, well, what is life? What is awareness? What is consciousness? It's just you're bearing witness to this moment in life. That's it. Okay, fine. So like, I need to have that, <laughs> you know? In, in those moments, those moments of freedom and home that I create for myself, I don't have a hierarchy. In those moments, all I have is safety. And I try to bring that into classrooms too. Like when I was teaching, um, I got the DYF and I was teaching my own class for the uh-huh. first time. And uh, I was trying to create that, that sense of safety for students as much as I could, because all I sensed was just anxiety and fear and paranoia around them feeling like they're gonna say the wrong thing or that they have said the wrong thing. And I was just, or, or that they watch something with pleasure when they shouldn't have, you know? And I'm like, what? I was like, you know, you guys should just free yourselves of that. You know, like we're all students and this is a space where you get to make mistakes and grow and develop, you know? And I was like, as long as all of you guys have this um, desire to learn and remain curious, like, you can do no wrong, you know, like, and if you do, I'll let you know, and I will not shame you. I will not cancel you. I will not ruin your life. <laughs> you're not, you're not some powerful executive who is assaulting dozens, if not hundreds of women. You know what I mean? Like, um, I had to sort of remind them of those things and, and try to guide them the best I could. But anyway, like, I guess that's what I mean. Well, I I think that I think there's a certain there's also a certain privilege built into being able to do that mm-hmm. because to some people that would even never even occur to them because. It's more about survive than thrive. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, I know for sure that there are risks that I didn't take hmm. because as a working class kid, mm-hmm. you get a job, you keep a job, you, you know, it, it was, and being by myself, being on my mm-hmm. own, yeah, it was also being self-supporting mm-hmm. by my own contributions, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it, you know, well, I think that is freeing. And certainly I've had those moments mm-hmm. where I'm writing. It's been a long time, but, you know, when I was working on a screenplay and the characters were talking to me, mm-hmm. you know, I was just writing it down. Yeah. Um, but things are so, at the same time that we need that, mm-hmm. we need permission Mm-hmm. To feel expansive, mm. um, we can't lose sight of the structural ped- impediments mm-hmm. that are becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. I, I just read that a federal judge declared DACA illegal. Um, what a what a crazy timing! It's when in the heights is like in theaters and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And and, and so it, it it's um you've got to and that's the that's the ideal balance, mm-hmm. you know, balancing keeping my heart as free as I can, mm-hmm. my soul as free as I can. While never forgetting that there are people who are t- trying to take freedoms away from me. Oh, yeah. 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 But I did hear something that was helpful to me. You know, they were like, power is not something anybody can give or take away. Power is something that is inherent in a being. And I try to think of that as much as I can. Because I understand all your feelings about that working class impossibility. You know, my parents were farmers. I'm an immigrant. My parents are immigrants. My parents' business that they built went bankrupt with the 2008 collapse. Their house went foreclosed. Uh, I lived through eight years of the Bush administration all through high school and college where every single adult I ever spoke to said to me, you're never going to have a job. And, um, And despite all that, I still majored in English and minored in philosophy. I got a Fulbright, and yet when I came back from my Fulbright, I was working three part-time jobs, making making $1,100 a month. And with that, I paid rent and utilities and MetroCard and student loans while living in New York City. I, without healthcare, of course. Of course. I, I understand like I know the ins and outs of that and you know to graduate into a pandemic with a PhD and be on like be on the phone for 45 minutes this morning trying to get to CalFresh to get my food stamps mm-hmm. and to be on unemployment which doesn't even cover my rent right um 
And on top of that, still go to Portland to do two shows. That's going to be putting me in the red by hundreds of dollars and buy a, a sketchbook and crayons for $2.99 so that I could draw and meditate. You know, um, I have to do those things. And I have to put aside this belief that, you know, money will solve everything. Um, and I and I continuously tell myself that, you know, an artist and a thinker's lot is not, I mean, it doesn't make any sense in societal terms. It doesn't. Like, like, like I said in the beginning of our podcast, which is, it was just like, they keep telling me, you know, oh, you're actually a failure, you know, like you're, you're a nobody, you're never gonna, nothing is ever gonna work out. The ideas you present are ridiculous and they're preposterous. And I'm just like, I'm okay with all of that. <laughs> all of that is your opinion, man. And I'm doing what I do because this is the most liberating thing for me. This is the thing that brings me the most joy and the most calm and equilibrium. And I have to do, I have to prioritize what, what my inner being considers the most important. And um, well, that does, that soul. does, yeah. And, and that does mean um, appearing as though I make no sense. And I really... Well, you don't make... It. You don't necessarily make sense in capitalist terms. Yeah, I make zero in sense. Neo, in neoliberal terms. Yeah, zero sense. You, you know? Um, yeah. And, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it It's... I guess um, I guess I wish, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. I wish I hadn't, because I don't think I played it safe, but mm -hmm. I think I played it safer. But I think um, you, I think you were bold, Bambi. Really, I mean, the, like getting a PhD, like trying to get a PhD from a working class family, that is fucking bold. Like UCLA had so many rich kids, especially like rich oh. Asian kids. My God, the money that they come reeking in, you know, it was ridiculous. But um, my cohort, you know, um, mostly working class, all people of color and like, it's, it, it's bold, it is. You know, it is. And um, like, again, that your book, like Laughing Mad was bold. And, you know, I felt a passion in it because of that, that background you have, I feel, you know, like somebody who comes from like a cushy ass life who doesn't have the fire under their ass at every waking moment, like they're not going to write with passion and fire in every line like you do. You know, that's so nice of you to say. Yeah, but that is that's my truth. That's how I feel. Like I recognize that, you know? And um so yeah, I mean, what's the point of lamenting uh having pursued some safety? Like to me it just comes with the territory. Like for me, it's about getting rid of that safety. Like, uh, oh, no, no, remove the vest. And like I'm um 
listening to like David Cho's guest appearances on podcasts a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm learning a lot from him. Like I, I identify with him very much. And, uh, you know, he has the financial security now to just fuck off and be like one of these like white dudes who are into ayahuasca all day, every day. That's cool. But I'm glad that he's not a white guy doing that. I'm glad that he's a middle child, Korean immigrant child, grew up in SoCal with nothing, didn't go to school, hitchhiked all over, risked his life for experience and art. Like, I'm learning a lot from him. And, um, you know, Bambi, like, you're still living. You know, you could increasingly remove your safety vest. It's never too late. Even as you write this, these articles on Insecure and Lovecraft, you know, like remove no, your safety I, vests, right? I, You know, and it's interesting that you say that about Laughing Mad, just because there were no very few books on stand-up. I know. Then. Yeah. Um, and finally, I just said, I've got to write my book. Yes. And if it gets me tenure, fine. If it doesn't, that's where it's going to be. <laughs> and, and um, of course, when you, your first book should never win an award. Mm. <laughs> it's, it just shouldn't because there's mm. nowhere to go but down. Mm. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's, I, I guess, if I were to define myself, I think of myself as a teacher who does scholarship, hmm. not a scholar who teaches. Hmm. And if I'm not teaching, if I'm not creating some kind of affinity, if I'm not pulling you into the subjectivity of this analysis, hmm. then I'm not doing my job. Mm-hmm. Because it's about teaching. I, I'm not interested mm -hmm. in just talking to other academics. Mm. Because it, more and more you realize how, just what the divisions are. Yeah. It, like, like I was in, I, I, I was in, uh, trying to remember, something for the humanities for all of us. Mm -hmm. And they said, and they were asking how many people are first generation college mm -hmm. students. Mm -hmm. And there were three of us. Oh my God. Three. Hmm. And a lot of my colleagues are professors' kids. Yeah. Or are um, <laughs> the kids of lawyers and doctors and, you know, we're yep, talking. These kids. Yeah, you're talking upper middle class. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I, you know, I did not play it safe in that there's like, if the apocalypse happens tomorrow, mm -hmm. I'm food. Like, mm -hmm. there's nothing else I can do. Mm -hmm. uh, Kyle Kinane does a great, great bit about that, about how, um, you know, People are not going to say, oh, let's go into the city to find a clown to keep us entertained. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in some ways, uh, yeah. It, it, but but I, I do feel like the way I feel 
my contribution and that really is connecting with the teacher part Yeah, mm-hmm. is, you know, I look at Raquel and I look at Raquel Gates and I look at Kristen Warner, not that they were my students, mm-hmm. but I've known them since they were baby scholars. Right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I help that help to nurture that. Yeah. Just the same way John and Deshome yeah. help to nurture me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there, there are lots of people in academia who really aren't interested in that. Yeah, that's very true. It's for the greater glory of me. Yeah, that's so true. I I think um, a good teacher is like invaluable, you know, and I know that you're invaluable to your students. I mean, Ellen Scott being one of them, you know. Yeah, and, Ellen. Uh, Ellen's, Ellen's an amazing teacher too, you know, I mean, um, I, and I learn a lot from, you know, folks like you, folks like you, folks like John Caldwell, you know, um, even Noriega, like, I think he gets misconstrued as like, more of a scholar rather than a teacher. But like, at least for me, he was a really great advisor. And what I loved about working with Chon was like, especially when I would have those freak out moments, like when I went to South Korea to do field work, like the moment I got there, I was freaking out. And I was like, of course. I don't know, I, I'm questioning everything. And he just wrote like a couple sentences in an email back to me. He was just like, don't let, don't think about theory first, do your work and then plug in the theory to help you. That's all he had to say. And then I was like, all right. And then I chilled out, you know? And I just did yeah. my field work freely and, you know, got a, a very rich experience out of it. And, um, yeah, like, you know, these these teachers, like, they they stay with you for a lifetime, you know, like to show me and, and John Caldwell, they, they stay with you a lifetime, you know. So um, in that way, you know, we're tremendous influencers. And that's why I say, like, why are STEM fields getting $200,000 whereas our work gets 28,000? It's like, we're we're also life givers and life savers, right? It's like, come on. Because it's hard but, to monetize us. And you know what, Bambi? Like, I, this is what I was also thinking. This is like a, a joke that I was like kind of working on, but it's like, the reason why they pay us so little is because we know too much. You know, they're trying to kill us. They're trying to squash us so that we stop talking about it. We know, we know this is all a conspiracy. So, um, I mean, I don't know if there's liberation in that, but, but, you know, like, I'm, I'm glad that like, you know, I know scholars like you. I'm glad that there are scholars like you out there, teachers like you out there, you know, writing and teaching and sharing your truth and your perspectives. I think that's, I think that enriches our society. So I'm grateful to you for that. Well, and I'm grateful, you know, I'm grateful to be able to talk with you and, and hear your experience because you've done things I haven't done, but there are, you know, as I think I shared with you before, there's students of mine who are trying to, who were in the com- comedy classes who are mm. trying to do it, Yeah, you know, who are, with Second City now, or, mm-hmm. you know, or doing, um, doing something different, although improv is entirely different from standard. Um, 
I, I privilege stand up. I, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be clear about that. I just do. Um, and it's because it, it's the purest form of comedy. It's you yeah. and a mic. That's, That's it. it. Yeah. Nothing else. And Bambi, I mean, I was rewatching um, Eight Mile last night, which is not as good of a movie as I thought it was. But like <laughs> the similarities between like freestyle rapping and stand up, like the way it works, that's all it is, is like people just gather and they have a moment and they share their art and then the people disperse and it's as if nothing was ever there. It could be a random space. Like there was a moment in the Detroit, like one of the parking lots in Detroit, you know, that's a scene. And I was just like, that's how stand-up is. Like we just do it at a park or a rooftop or somebody's garage or somebody's backyard. Or we all gather, have that moment, and then it disperse. And I'm just like, that is so beautiful. Right? And, and it's and in so many ways it's culturally rooted, yet, right? Because a battle. It snaps. That's yeah. signifying. That's yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Um. It, it, you know, there there are different tweaks to it. Right. But but it, it's it's really, and I think there are so many cultures where there's an oral tradition mm-hmm. that are so that that's so vital. Yes. And that it and those oral traditions transcend class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because once one generation speaks to another, mm-hmm. when when it's possible, of course, yeah. you know you look at whole generations of people, uh, uh, black folks in the eighties and in the nineties, what uh, you know the war on drugs did. Um, yeah, but but I think that. I just think it's really it, it's it's really important to acknowledge all of the influences as many as you can. What you know how how I got here, mm. you know how I found my voice, mm-hmm. and and you know I will never be a stand-up comic, but mm. what has influence me is that I want people to laugh mm-hmm. while they're well they're reading about comedy mm-hmm. I want them to get a laugh yeah because if you can't do that why are you talking about comedy yeah um and I don't feel comfortable in a classroom until I get my first laugh yeah yeah it's a it's a form so, of acceptance yeah it's yeah it's, it's a way of being, and it's a way of being vulnerable without mm-hmm. losing control. Mm-hmm. Yep, comics are control freaks. <laughs> so are most professors. Yeah. <laughs> so much so that very few of them even agreed to come on my podcast it's like it's just a chat they're like but can you send me like more information it's like oh my god when are you gonna let go man but um anyway bambi i know you have to go back to writing so um i don't want to eat up any more of your time but thank you for having this time with me it was such a pleasure oh, talking it was wonderful to you. 
It's wonderful. Yeah. Anytime, anytime. 